Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Checkdown Charlie's podcast. As always, I'm your host Eric, and as always, I'm joined by my friend and co-host Theo. What is going on, Theo? Nothing, man. Just uh, hanging out, waiting for the uh, conference finals to take place. You know, the NFC Championship game, the AFC Championship game. I think this year we actually got you know a good combination of teams in the mix. So just for context and to put a timestamp on it, we have the Bucks and Packers in the NFC and the Chiefs and Bills in the AFC. Yeah, I would say that all four of those teams played well enough during the season to be representatives of their given conferences. Got any predictions? My head says Packers, Chiefs, but my heart is telling me Bucks, Bills. Really? I don't know what it... Yeah, with the AFC Championship game... I could see either team, you know, making it. Like if the Bills play a very consistent game or are able to maintain possession, I could easily see them winning. It's one of those things where if they played, let's say, five times, I could see the Chiefs winning three times and the Bills winning twice. Right. So I think it's anybody's game. On the NFC side, a lot of people are pegging the Packers to go back, you know, curb stomping, so to speak, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But since it's been announced, it's going to be in a Tampa Bay. The Super Bowl is going to be played in Tampa Bay. Yeah. With 22,000 fans, I feel like it's like extra motivation to get back. Yeah, seriously. I mean, I feel like people pick the Packers to make it far every single year and they always end up faltering. And so I, I don't necessarily trust the Packers defense to be able to stop the Bucks. you know? Yeah. I know that, you know, a lot of the betting lines and stuff, they reflect a Packers dominant performance but mm. the one suspect thing going for them is the, their lack of run defense and i feel like this is a sort of game where if the bucks can grind you know in lambo they can just run the ball consistently right. you know they could be put in a position to win the game and i, I don't know i think it would be crazy you have the bucks and let's say bill's mafia Freaking, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, we'll see part. because you have kind of two major injuries on both sides of both conferences, let's say. So the Bucks are without Antonio Brown, who was ruled out with a knee injury. And then obviously Patrick Mahomes was seeing stars last week and unbelievably passed concussion protocol, which I'm sure the NFL executives are thrilled that Chad Henney is not playing <laughs> to be in the Super Bowl, and instead it'll be Patrick Mahomes. So we'll see how you know healthy yeah, he, he is. He can't take any major hits this weekend. That's, that's for thing. sure. That's the thing. We'll see what happens. If I had to make a prediction, I'll say Chiefs and Bucks in the finals. Chiefs and Bucks, eh? Yeah. I know this year has been tough, but I really want to commend the Buffalo Bills fan base. They've set the league on fire with this uh, table smashing thing. You know, getting you know really good shots on the internet of people smashing tables and just representing the team. We're pretty close to Buffalo, so it's always been sort of like the home team for Toronto. Yeah, definitely. And even though I'm a Dolphins fan, and there's always been that rivalry, you know, the fucking squish the fish rivalry, uh, <laughs> I'm happy for them. You know, they deserve this at this point in time. For sure. And I would also like to commend their fans on donating money and pooling together to donate to charity. I know that they did it earlier in the season, and then after they beat the Ravens, they were able to pull together and donate about $350,000 to Lamar Jackson's chosen charity. So 
really classy move there by Bills Mafia. And honestly, no matter who wins, I know that the both of those games are going to be great to watch, and I'm very excited for them. Despite the season being sort of up in the air for, you know, I'd say a relatively long period of time, games being flexed here and there, you know, the NFL in some way or another did us a solid and like put these four teams together. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But we are here to round off our History of the New York Giants podcast series. What better way to do that with the state of the franchise? So this one will be structured a little bit differently than our previous episodes, obviously. We'll take a look back on the Giants season, kind of do a season in review, and where we see the Giants going in the future and where they kind of need to improve their team, where they did well, so on and so forth. So it's kind of a nod to the way we used to do it, you know, the the weekly kind of recap podcasts, not necessarily going through game film of every single game, but kind of going through the season and then giving our thoughts on it. Of course, none of us have experience coaching or being a GM. So, (laughs) you know, take it with a grain of salt. But you know, I'm a Giants fan. And we know enough about football that we could start a podcast and uh, do a state of the franchise on the Giants. So here we go. At the end of the day, we're fans. And these are four other fans. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And this is sort of uh, Eric's. Eric has gone through, you know, sort of a rough year with this uh, Giants franchise. And this is like his airing of grievances. Indeed. You know? Indeed. He's channeling his inner George Costanza's dad. It's his time of the year and he's just going on a fucking tirade. Frank. Frank Costanza. Yeah. Frank That'll be me. We're a little too late for Festivus, but we'll still do the airing of grievances. So basically, we'll start with the free agent signings in the offseason. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'll go through the main additions that they made. So cornerback James Bradbury, Deion Lewis to be a backup to Saquon Barkley. They signed defensive tackle Leonard Williams to the franchise tag after they had traded the Jets' uh, fifth-round pick, I believe, for him the season before. They signed linebacker Blake Martinez and Kyler Fackrell, both from the Green Bay Packers. Levine Toilolo, I guess, and Corey Coleman, I mean, former first-round pick, and then the rest are kind of, you know, special teamers. Oh, and Colt McCoy to be the backup to Daniel Jones. They also ended up signing Devontae Freeman and Alfred Morris during the season. We'll move on to the draft picks, first of all, as well, that the Giants front office made in Joe Judge's first season in charge. So it was clear that the Giants were trying to address a position of need in bolstering their secondary and spending three of their first five draft picks on offensive linemen. Xavier McKinney was also considered a highly coveted prospect at the safety position, and they were able to nab him in the second round. People were surprised when offensive tackle Andrew Thomas was the first tackle taken off the board, as opposed to Jedrick Wills or Mackay Becton, both of whom have proven to be worthy of their first round grade. However, Andrew Thomas was seen as the quote-unquote safer option of these three prospects and showed gradual improvement throughout the season. The team also had contributions from the rest of the guys they drafted, including Mr. Irrelevant, linebacker Tay Crowder, whose shining moment was recovering a fumble for a touchdown and a win against the Washington football team. As I mentioned, they were trying to address the O-line. I think there's upside in their picks of Thomas and McKinney. The other guys remain to be seen, but overall, I think combined with the free agent class, they really did a, a decent job. But we'll see, obviously, how it pans out. I know, like, seventh-round pick Carter Coughlin, mm-hmm. the linebacker in Minnesota, you know, he's had his fair share of playing time this year. Mm-hmm. And he's second on the depth sharp in terms of their linebacking core. Right. And you just see this trend with Gettleman where he's drafting these linebackers and 
in mid to late rounds, mm -hmm. you know, and getting the most value out of them. All in all, it still remains to be seen as to how these guys pan out. But I think you have some considerable building blocks from this draft. Definitely. They have in Andrew Thomas what they consider to be sort of a franchise left tackle, which is always important in terms of protection of, of Daniel Jones, and we'll get into that later. But the Giants and Joe Judge actually had a pretty turbulent offseason to deal with, their first offseason <laughs> as Giants coach. So we'll move on to the arrest of DeAndre Baker. Before the season, a Giants 2019 first-round pick, cornerback DeAndre Baker, is arrested for allegedly brandishing a weapon and threatening to rob people at a party in Florida. He and Seahawks cornerback Quentin Dunbar are alleged to be co-conspirators. And so this is a quote from Bleacher Report. One of the witnesses, whose name was redacted when the report was released, alleged he met the NFL players at a separate party two days earlier, and they'd lost $70,000. He also alleged they parked their car outside the second party in a way to set up an expedited departure, quote-unquote. Ultimately, because of the backlash of all this and the attention that it was getting, DeAndre Baker did turn himself into police. Ultimately, no charges were filed, but the Giants ended up releasing him, and the last I heard, he was actually signed to the Kansas City Chiefs practice squad. The Giants traded up into the first round, back up into the first round last year to draft DeAndre Baker, who turned out to be a bust before he had a chance to play anything. And like, Classic Andy Reid move, eh? Going after a player with suspected character. You know what I mean? I think that's probably a good way of doing it. And like you think about organizations like the Raiders in the past or the Bengals who take players with character issues and sometimes they don't work out and other times they do. You know, like you look at someone like Tyreek Hill is the classic contemporary example, was a fourth round pick because of alleged violence. Uh, violence yeah domestic violence in the past but obviously he's paid his dues made amends and is now arguably the most dangerous weapon as a wide receiver in in the league and is paying off in spades for the chiefs yeah it's funny enough that deandre baker might win a super bowl this year right not really having played and you know at this point the Chiefs are playing with house money right they can take it or leave it but the upside is just way too great which sort of sucks on the Giants side side yeah. of things especially at this point where they're in the process you know Joe Judge is in the process of building the culture mm -hmm. like that's the emphasis right now I was about to say that it doesn't matter whether you're a first round pick if you are not able to focus on football and focus on doing your job properly then you know yeah. Get out of the building, basically. And it's interesting. I don't think Quentin Dunbar was ever cut by the Seahawks. I think he still played this season. Uh, you know, no harm, no foul. So it just goes to show the divergent paths. But I feel like it was important for Joe Judge to send a message to his team, especially being a first-year head coach like that. So we'll go into pending free agents now this offseason. And a lot of them are on, you know, one-year deals. So basically the big pending free agent for this season is going to be Leonard Williams and then also defensive tackle Dalvin Tomlinson and running back Wayne Gallman are the ones that I highlighted as being important and we'll get into the players a little bit more later and what they should do however as with any franchise I think it starts and ends with the quarterback position so we'll go into Daniel Jones Daniel Jones had 14 starts this season and 12 last season as a rookie he had 11 touchdown passes this year, 
compared to 24 touchdown passes last year. He was sacked on 9.1% of his dropbacks versus 7.6% last year. However, the coaching staff seems to be committed to him being the quarterback of the future, even though he regressed during the season. So this is from The Athletic. Jones didn't make the leap often experienced by second-year quarterbacks. Most of Jones's numbers were down despite making 14 starts in the season compared to 12 as a rookie. He had a drop in touchdown passes, 24 to 11, but he also cut back on turnovers, 12 interceptions and 18 fumbles in 2019, 10 interceptions and 11 fumbles in 2020. So that being said, the jury is definitely still out on Daniel Jones. Like, I don't think he's proven himself at all, with all due respect to Daniel Jones. I mean, you see flashes of the deep ball accuracy. You see him making moves with his legs. You know, you see flashes of it, but I just don't think he has the weapons around him to thrive. And yeah. I just don't see him being a franchise QB yet. He's going to have to make a big leap in year three for me to be convinced of his staying power in the NFL. What do you think, Theo? I think, yeah, you can't really judge his year-to-year statistics just based on the fact that the Giants' offense overall was sort of anemic. You know, they lose Saquon Barkley. Mm-hmm. I know Wayne Gallman stepped up and sort of played a big role for them, yep. but they just had an overall lackluster offense. If I were to draw a parallel, from my experience as a Dolphins fan, mm-hmm. he sort of gives me Ryan Tannehill vibes in the sense that you don't really know the delineation between how much of it is his fault and how much of it is just poor performance on the offense in, in general. general. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty clear for most Giants fans, this needs to be the overall focus this offseason is to improve this offense. Mm-hmm. Whether that be, you know, change of play caller, maybe the responsibility rests on Jason Garrett's hand, you know, just improving the team overall through draft or free agency. I think it still remains a priority. What I would say in terms of, of you know wishful thinkers that are big on Daniel Jones is that you know he's shown the ability to do all these things you know whereas like someone that I'm not necessarily big on right now as a Dolphins fan is Tua because Tua hasn't shown like yes he is accurate yes he's been able to perform at times but he hasn't been able to show his downfield accuracy it's just not apparent whatsoever mm-hmm. you know what I mean mm-hmm. his floor is high but his ceiling seems very low, whereas Daniel Jones seems like he has the potential for a really high ceiling. Yes. It's just that the consistency needs to be there. You know right. I mean? He and, needs to raise the floor. And I will say he was hampered late in the season with a hamstring injury that really affected his mobility. Now, obviously, you can say it's the NFL. Players get injured all the time. But that did kind of sap away part of his athletic ability, which is what I think really hurt them down the stretch to where, you know, he's kind of a sitting duck in that Cardinals game. He's a sitting duck, you know, in the Browns game as well. Now, obviously, the Cardinals and Browns are superior teams to the Giants, I think, both on offense and defense. But you can tell that once an element of his game is done, he struggled. I was really surprised with his athletic ability. I know he's become sort of memeable because of that long run and fall right. midway through the season. Just the mere fact that he was able to run that long mm-hmm. for that much yardage proves that he has the athletic ability. Where I would like to see him is excel in a situation like a Matt Ryan, his MVP winning season, mm. you know, where Kyle Shanahan was the offensive coordinator and what he did was accentuate Matt Ryan's athletic ability, you know, get him out on bootlegs, not 
necessarily focus the whole offense around his running ability, but use it as a major proponent to expand his playmaking ability. Yeah. And you can tell they did run some option stuff for him, but I would agree that the offense in itself, it was too vanilla. And we can get into Jason Garrett a little bit later on in the in the show, but I, I would agree that they need to take more advantage of getting him out into space and using the run game a little bit more. They need to move in a freaking pocket, you know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, get him out in a position to make a play. I wouldn't want to see something like a full-blown concentration on the running aspect, like let's say someone like Dak Prescott, mm-hmm. but, you know, just have it as a major component to keep defenses guessing. Moving on, I think we touched on it before, but another injury in Week 2 derailed the season offensively for the Giants as Saquon Barkley tore his ACL against the Bears. Does the second season-ending injury of his career, assuming he can come back at the level at which he was producing previously, he should add some much-needed juice to the Giants' offense. I think this is what's pissing me off the most about the Giants, is that they are on the verge of wasting this man's career. In my opinion, if anybody can come back from an ACL, it's Saquon. Like, don't get me wrong, but holy shit. I was so rattled when Saquon went down again. He's just such an explosive playmaker, but you can't put that much stock on a running back to be your entire offense. That's how you get him hurt, in my opinion. As it stands right now, I don't know, I'm not as big on Saquon as most Giants fans, but where would you rank him in terms of all the running backs in the NFL. I would say he's definitely a top 10 running back in the league. Assuming he comes back at the level that was playing. he was playing at previously, I would put him in the top five for sure. Where would you rank him? So like, who would you put ahead of him? Who would you put behind him? On the spot, I would say Alvin Kamara is probably on his level. Derrick Henry is probably better than Saquon. Dalvin Cook. Dalvin Cook, yeah. And then probably Saquon, because I wouldn't put Zeke ahead of Saquon. Yeah, I think there's sort of a deterioration to Zeke's game, but Mm -hmm. I would sort of put him underneath Nick Chubb, just based on production. That offense is slightly different because, you know, you have two blue chip running backs, you Mm -hmm. know, spelling Mm -hmm. each other and stuff. I don't know. I think the attitude the Giants have to take personally is that they sort of have to build the offense without Saquon and just sort of incorporate him versus making him more of a feature the back. Because like, I, think, I think anything at this point, like I know he's been injured twice. It's sort of nice to think because he's young and because he's so freaking athletic and you know, has the best quads in the freaking... <laughs> it is good to hope that he comes back to normal playing status, but like you can't just entirely bet on that. Exactly. You sort of hope for the best, you know, and whatever he can give you, you can sort of take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree that the Giants are lacking in overall weapons on offense and that the offense, just in general, regardless of Saquon, needs to be a point of emphasis this offseason. And I think the Giants brass are cognizant of that. Yeah, I think there's just a lot that needs to change. You know, if you're the 31st ranked offense, you're not that's not going to get it done in the NFL, you know. That being said, they signed Deion Lewis and Deion Lewis was okay. Who really popped out to replace Saquon was Wayne Gallman. So he proved to be a worthy backup to Saquon and probably earned himself a contract with another team this offseason. Alfred Morris was also able to fill in valiantly, 
but isn't a long-term option at the position. And then they also signed Devontae Freeman during the season, but none of them have the same impact on a team as Saquon, and it'll be nice to have Saquon back. As for all of the other weapons on offense, Sterling Shepard emerged as the most reliable option for the team at wide receiver, but is ideally suited as a number two wide receiver beside somebody else. He's a solid possession guy, and like he's got good athletic ability, made a lot of plays in that Week 17 game against the Cowboys, had two touchdowns, over 100 receiving yards, so he can be a valuable piece on offense, but... I don't think he's like a superstar wide receiver. Golden Tate was also suspended for a game for complaining about his role on the team and most likely will not be with the team next season. Golden Tate has not managed to top 50 yards receiving in a game in 2020. Golden Tate is cool, like much respect to the guy, but obviously he fell off this year and I don't see him being back with the Giants. To be quite yeah, honest with you. You guys sort of have a vanilla receiving core, mm-hmm. much like the Detroit Lions. I know that, you know, Golden Tate's, there's nothing really special about him. He sort of summarizes what the, the receiving core is about in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. And now he's, I think he's going to be turning 31 this offseason and he's owed millions. So they'll probably just cut him as a cap casualty, I believe. And they need to draft more. That being said, Darius Slayton showed flashes and a great connection with Daniel Jones and has definitely proven his medal in the league as a fifth round pick. So Darius Slayton, I really, really like. He's a good deep ball guy. He's a good contested catch guy. For a fifth round pick, I mean, we'll take it. He's definitely a valuable piece on offense. I still think that the Giants are a few pieces away. Ironically, they could use someone like Odell Beckham to be a number one option for Daniel Jones, and I think that they could definitely use his services. Just to put it into perspective, the Giants receivers accounted for 24 drops this season, which is tied for fifth most in the league. Darius Slayton, Sterling Shepard, and Golden Tate in 2019 had 1,992 yards and 17 touchdowns together. This season, they had 1,795 and 8 touchdowns. This is from G-Men Season on Instagram. Great follow as well. Part of that could be attributed to Daniel Jones's regression, but it could also be that the receivers just didn't get it done. You know, couldn't get it done this season. How would you attack this portion of the offense this offseason if you were Gettleman? I would say you cut Golden Tate because you owe him too much money. I would say keep Slayton, keep Shepard, keep Evan Ingram, and Evan Ingram we'll get into later use a second round pick on a wide receiver now i don't know anything about college prospects or anything of that nature but i think that they should definitely address the position in this year's draft i'm just looking at the current free agent market Mm. one of the potential big names is juju smith schuster but he doesn't seem like a good fit Mm -hmm. because i think the emphasis needs to be on explosivity not possession Mm -hmm. sammy watkins you know there can be good value there no, because he provides a specific role. Yeah. Corey Davis, Willie Sneed could be a potential option. I heard of them getting Kenny Galladay as well, which yeah. could be an explosive but option for them. I know Kenny Galladay, he's had a sort of down season. The year prior, he was putting out numbers in, in sort of fantasy. But for some reason, I've always had this like label on Detroit Lions receivers where they're sort of like, middle-of-the-pack possession guys. You know, the Golden Tates of the world. Except for Calvin Johnson, of course. Except for Calvin Johnson. Yeah, it's just like, like since Calvin Johnson retired, they've sort of, like, attacked that position as, like, they've just supplemented several different players to Mm -hmm. make up for Johnson's productivity, which has never actually panned out. 
I wouldn't necessarily pay a premium for a wide receiver at this point. No. Or like draft one early. I'm just not big on that, even though there are potential really good options, you know, especially coming out of Alabama this year. There's always really good depth in the middle rounds. If we were to look at the 2020 draft specifically, in the first round, you get a good breadth of players at the wide receiver position, like Henry Ruggs, Jerry GVCD Lamb. Justin Jefferson, man. But... Let me read off to you who got drafted in the second round there. The Bengals take T. Higgins. The Colts take Michael Pittman yep. Jr. The Jags take LaVisca Chenault. Pittsburgh take Chase Claypool. And the Rams take Van Jefferson. So, like, there's production there. You know what I mean? Definitely. Broncos, I know they had K.J. Hamler, who's added as a feature bonus alongside Jerry Judy. But, like, just to say, you don't necessarily need that capital investment in a wide receiver considering that any one of these receivers if you were to redraft could overtake any one of those receivers taken in the first round I besides agree. from justin jefferson there's so, always good depth at those positions i would definitely agree with that moving on to another member of that receiving core was evan ingram evan ingram i could say also had a bad season and the giants now have to decide whether or not to pick up his fifth year option in 2021 he had a number of key drops for the team and is probably best as a complimentary option rather than a feature player for the offense which is probably true for uh, all of the wide receiver options for the team at this point, that you could say they're better as complementary options to, let's say, a number one. But anyway, he certainly has the talent to be a factor in the league, but the jury is still out on whether or not the Giants should or will exercise their options. So again, Jerry Reese spends a first-round pick on Evan Ingram. Those two tight ends is Evan Ingram and David Njoku, who's going to outperform the other. I think Evan Ingram is solid, but again, you know, maybe just had a bad season. Uh, hopefully he can prove himself, but again, the jury's still out on him. What do you think? I don't know if they should exercise the fifth-year option. You're betting on potential at this point, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he's still relatively young. It's sort of interesting because I was on uh, Giants Facebook, and people are in on David Njoku because, you know, he's, he's born in Jersey, and everyone's like, oh, we should have taken this dude opposed to Evan Ingram. And many people did think that. On the big board, they had David Njoku rated higher, right? Right. I know David Njoku's been like hampered with injuries. And like Ingram, he's still relatively young. So I would sort of like have like a wait and see thing. Because the Browns as well, like they don't know what they're going to do with him. And he wasn't a focal point of the offense. Mm-hmm. And the year prior, they had made a bigger investment in Austin Hooper. The Browns themselves have had good production from the tight end position. Mm-hmm. On top of Austin Hooper, Harrison Bryant has come into the fold. So they might not necessarily need Njoku, and the Giants could sort of pin one against the other, whoever's willing to take the better deal. And this all remains to be seen based on what the market's going to look like. At this point, you're paying for potential. Mm-hmm. And what I would say is that if I were to compare the two, I would say Njoku has a higher ceiling just based on athletic prowess. And, you know, he just seems like a bigger physical specimen. Sure. Yeah, we'll see how the organization want to approach it. I'd like to see Evan Ingram do well. Was he worth the first round pick that was spent? I don't think he was just yet, but hopefully you can have a bounce back year next year. So moving on to the defense, standouts on defense include Dalvin Tomlinson and Leonard Williams, both of whom are free agents this offseason. Yay! Leonard Williams was acquired last year for a fifth round pick from the Jets and had a career high 11 and a half sacks. 
from the defensive tackle position, which is really impressive. The sense is that he will be too expensive for the Giants to bring back, but you never know. So clearly that's why they were able to get him for a fifth because he still has yet to sign the deal. And at this point, (laughs) he's proven himself to be a great addition along the defensive line. So who knows? I mean, the Giants could sign him, but I've seen him going to the Panthers. I've seen him going to other places. So we'll see what happens, but good for him. It looks more realistic for them to sign Tomlinson, mm-hmm. you know, just have that sort of anchor, you know, the nose tackle. It could potentially look like a position that they address in the first round next year. You know, Dexter Lawrence came into the fold and he's looking like, you know, a legitimate prospect. I wouldn't necessarily be too worried as long as they get depth at that position. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, good for Leonard Williams anyway for proving himself. So I hope he gets paid wherever he goes. But hopefully it's with the Giants. Also, another great free agent signing and standout on defense was Blake Martinez, who was third in the league with 151 tackles on the season. He proved to be a great free agent signing and super important to the defense. While it can be a bad sign that a player has that many tackles, I think he's here to stay and was an excellent choice by Gettleman and Judge as the middle linebacker. He's flying to the ball, great free agent signing. Hopefully he doesn't have to make as many tackles next season, but good for him for breaching that plateau. I hope he reached an incentive in his contract or something for that. Yeah, talk about a good value. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of prospect where it was like middle of the pack. You thought maybe he potentially got too much money because usually the Packers, historically speaking, like to build through the draft. They like to hold on to their prospects. Yeah. Them letting him go could have been a sign that they weren't too big on him. Mm -hmm. But he's definitely outperformed his contract at this point. Definitely. Yeah, I think he was still drafted by Ted Thompson, I think, was the GM beforehand. Mm -hmm. So it might have been a sign of like a new regime in Green Bay. Anyway, but yeah, I'm glad that he ended up with the Giants because it's great. Another player I'm glad that he ended up with the Giants was James Bradbury. He was able to step in as the number one cornerback on the roster on a team that probably would have been lost without him in the secondary, to be quite honest with you. Particularly after cutting DeAndre Baker, Bradbury has earned his $43.5 million contract this season. He's made it to the Pro Bowl in his first season with the Giants, and he's proven himself as a shutdown corner. This could also be because the number two spot has been a position of need for the team, but he did really well in shutting down the likes of DeAndre Hopkins, I believe had like 20 yards receiving on him. Terry McLaurin had something like 15 yards in two games against him. Like he is freaking great, man. And I'm glad that he signed with the Giants. Like he's definitely a a shutdown corner and here to stay. Good for him. I think it's interesting enough because during last offseason, they were really big on Byron Jones, but they ultimately couldn't pay the five-year $82 million contract that Dolphins had extended mm-hmm. to him. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting enough because if they were big on Byron Jones, then that meant Bradbury was their second option. And it's proven to have worked out because you've gotten a contract that's significantly less expensive. To be honest, I like Byron Jones from a talent perspective. I feel like he's superior to Bradbury, but in terms of production, they had relatively the same season. Mm -hmm. And that just looks good on Gettleman to basically extract better value. Before we had started this podcast, you say like one of the reasons Gettleman has saved this job is how he performed in free agency and not necessarily the draft. Certainly. And I think you can pinpoint his success to those two contracts, Mm -hmm. James Bradbury and Blake Martinez. Those are the highlights of the 2020 offseason. I would certainly say that too. I mean, you have a number one cornerback of the future and your middle linebacker of the future which 
arguably are two of the most important positions on defense. So I applaud Dave Gettleman in, in getting those right. Moving on, we have Jabril Peppers, who's shown some promise as well. He was well utilized by Patrick Graham, who is the defensive coordinator who will be staying on as defensive coordinator, thank God, because he did a really good job. Hopefully, Peppers and Xavier McKinney can stay healthy and build a lasting partnership on the back end of the defense. So, Jabril Peppers comes through in the Odell Beckham deal. He's provided a decent spark for the team, I would say. Like, he's a good playmaker. He does kick returns and stuff. Like, he's been a versatile piece for the team. Not much else to say about him, really. I, You know, he's good. He's all right. You know, I'm happy he's on the team. What are your thoughts on Patrick Graham since you guys stole him from the Dolphins, you know? <laughs> he was uh, basically Brian Flores' go-to guy in year one. Yeah. And then just gets poached by Joe Judge. He was given more added responsibility. He's going to get interviews, you know? Yeah. It seems like he's really well-liked within the league. Sure. And yeah, I couldn't be happier, honestly, with what Patrick Graham did this season with the defense. Now, that being said, like obviously the free agent additions helped out, but the way that the defense played, they were never really intimidated or blown out per se, except for the one game against the San Francisco 49ers in week three where they just got completely humiliated. Apart from that, they were competitive in most games, and I'm really happy with the way that they were coached. They were disciplined. They kind of put the offense on their back a lot of the time and kept them in the game. Can't really ask for much more out of a defense like that. So I'm happy to have Patrick Graham as the coordinator. What I love about these ex-Patriot coaches is that they don't place a premium on draft status or contract status. Mm -hmm. They'll play a player based on the way he's performing. At the beginning of the season, you sort of try to draw the depth chart and you think, oh, they got this guy, they got this guy, and they got that guy. And then all of a sudden you'll see these undrafted free agents or ancillary players that come into the fold and mm -hmm. become major components and they end up playing better than some of these bigger contract players. It's sort of nice because in that sense, especially on the defense, you don't have to always make a huge capital investment. The reliance is on how good the coaching is. Definitely. It's not necessarily a next man up mentality, but you know, we're working with what you got. I'm happy with how it turned out. I hope Patrick yeah. Graham stays for a few years. Perfect example that would be um you got to represent akron ohio but nico lalos you know he's coming to the fold he's sort of like a depth player and i swear to you eric i have him pegged as like the next Vrabel slash ninkovich you know he's uh relatively big you know six five and he's wearing the number 57 where it's like he's like that tweener classic new england tweener outside linebacker slash defensive end sure how much of your enthusiasm comes from the fact that he's also greek yeah uh a little bit no just a little bit <laughs> Yeah. No, I, I was impressed with the way Nicolalos played too. Like, good for him. And he made a name for himself in the league, which is always good to see. I'm big on those types of guys New England produces because mm -hmm. they're so valuable to the defense because they don't carry as much in terms of contract value, but their performance value is, is really high. You know, mm -hmm. those like oversized outside linebackers that are there to, to sort of seal the edge and stuff and also opportunistically rush the quarterback. Right. We're going to move on now to Logan Ryan, basically, who was another free agent addition that we didn't even talk about. But he actually ended up earning a contract as well in the back end with the team. A three-year, $31 million contract extension. And he kind of served more as a quarterback for the defense, in a way, or one of the more senior players on defense. Not necessarily stunning with his athletic ability, but also just a great guy, a great teammate. And, you know, an organizer, shall we say. 
And plus, he bought the entire defense uh, PlayStation 5s for Christmas. So, you know, good guy. Generous guy. <laughs> That's a true culture builder, right? Exactly. There. The culture builder, exactly. Added bonus. You, know, you guys are all playing Warzone online and stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Playing online as a team. That's team building right there. Exactly. Can't really ask for much more. The gift that keeps on giving. Exactly. Honorable mention also goes out to Graham Gano, who excelled in his first season as the Giants kicker. So, this is from Dan Duggan of The Athletic. Gano was like out. His lone missed field goal was a 57-yarder in week two. He then made a franchise record 30 straight field goals. Gano made five of six field goals from 50-plus yards, making him a weapon for a low-scoring team, which is probably what you would expect from a special teams coach. Our former special teams coach and Joe Judge, like, you know how to pick a kicker. Graham Gano, I think there was some legal trouble with Aldrich Rosas, who was the previous kicker, who they had to cut. So again, Turbulent offseason, but handled really well by the team, and, and Graham Gano excelled. And yet again, that Carolina Panthers connection, Gettleman associating himself with his former team, understanding the value of those players. Exactly. So moving on now to Joe Judge. Joe Judge was hired at age 39, the same age as Eli Manning during his retirement press conference. He was most notably the special teams coach for the New England Patriots before being a surprise hire by the G-Men before the 2020 season. Apparently, this is also a According to The Athletic, they were going to interview now Panthers head coach Matt Rule, but he had accepted an offer from the Panthers before ever interviewing with the Giants. However, I will say that Joe Judge, all things considered, did a really good job as coach for the Giants. So he dealt with a lot of adversity during his first year in charge of the team and handled it impressively throughout the season. So you have DeAndre Baker getting arrested. You have Mark Colombo being fired, the offensive line coach, which we'll get into right now. You have Golden Tate needing to be suspended midway through the season. You have Aldrich Rosas getting into legal trouble that I just mentioned, and they sign Graham Gano. All of this stuff is kind of water under the bridge. Like, it seemed to have been handled excellently by Joe Judge. And I think his persona is, like, so fitting for New York. you got to have, he carries that tough guy moniker, and you got to have that in New York. Coughlin was a smaller guy, but he had that personality. Parcells was the epitome of that. They sort of take on the personality of the city, mm-hmm. so to speak. I know that's a overused cliche, but it, it's very true in this case with Joe Judge. I would certainly say that, and he definitely got the players to buy into what they were doing. And he seems like the kind of guy that doesn't really take any crap from anybody, which is exactly what the team needed. They needed discipline. You know, it's a young head coach. He's only 39 relative to, you know, other positions. So I think it's great. The prospects are looking really good for Joe Judge being the head coach. That yeah. being said... I mentioned that he fired Mark Colombo, the offensive line coach, midway through the season. So this is from NewJersey.com. There's a couple of articles about that. Judge surprisingly fired Colombo last week after a verbal altercation where Colombo hurled expletives at Judge when he was told about adding Dave DiGuglielmo to the staff as a consultant. Multiple people familiar with the situation, told NJ Advanced Media. So through 11 weeks, Pro Football Focus had the Giants graded as the worst pass-blocking team in the NFL and fourth worst at run blocking. This is before the Colombo firing. After that, Wayne Gallman started to shine, Alfred Morris was getting some run with the team, and the offensive line started to get a lot better. Like, it's not every year that you fire a coach midway through the season and it ends up working out for your team, but in this instance, it did. There was a few things I read and heard about that incident, and one was that Colombo had been linked with the offensive coordinator, Jason Garrett, because, you know, they shared quite a bit of time together in Dallas. This is the sort of thing you want to see in a head coach, where there's something 
critically wrong with the team, mm-hmm. in this case, the pass blocking. And he goes ahead and fixes it despite Jason Garrett's connection with Colombo. He's goal-oriented versus people-oriented. That's right. I mean? And as the head coach, you have to sort of be that way. This is just a great reflection on the Giants' decision to make him a head coach. And I know you're a fan of this podcast, but Michael Lombardi hosts this podcast called The GM Shuffle. Yes. And he sort of goes on a, his own version of airing of grievances when it comes to the coaching hiring cycle. He calls this sort of period that we are in in the NFL sort of like the subcontracting hirings where like there's a a critical problem on one portion of the team whether it be offense or defense and a team brings in a specialist to make that aspect of the team better so a perfect example would be the los angeles chargers this year hiring the defensive coordinator of the rams brandon staley brandon staley and they bring in brandon staley to just fix the defense Mm -hmm. and keep whatever the offense was in place and basically get him to not worry about it. At the end of the day, you're coaching the whole freaking team, right? Yep. Michael Lombardi is like very big on a top-down organizational structure. And I believe that too, because I think in the long term, it's more successful. And why I tie this into the Giants is because I think he's more of like a wartime general. He's the guy from the top down giving the instructions He's not necessarily the guy that's nitpicky about the scheme or what specific offense you're running, mm-hmm. but the head coach's position overall is to put people in a position to do that. He doesn't necessarily have to be the guy calling plays, but he has to foster the environment, which makes the team excel. I would definitely like, agree with that. Are focused on these guys that can run great beaters and freaking pass plays, but they can't make a decision like fire Colombo when it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. You got to be a people person first. That's what I personally think. And I think you guys have that. I would definitely agree with that. I feel confident with Joe Judge at the helm. And I think once we improve the talent on offense of the team and maybe shuffle around some of the coordinators, Jason Garrett in particular, I'm not going to mince words. I think Jason Garrett, I don't think Jason Garrett is doing it a good enough job as the offensive coordinator for the Giants. Yeah. I think that this team could really make some waves. I thought Jason Garrett sort of you know, made a decent career move where he knew the decision. Like, he he had gotten fired. He went to a team in the similar division, so he knew how to play against, you know, the Eagles, the Redskins, and even his former team in the Dallas Cowboys. Right. And I thought he was going to come in, you know, sort of reinvent himself and, you know, spruce up the offense because now he just had to concentrate on that one portion of the team. Mm-hmm. I'm not really that impressed. It doesn't seem like he's done anything different. It's a combination of different factors, but I feel as though Jason Garrett's play calling could be improved as well as the options, the players themselves. I think a better scheme would have gotten more out of these players. We know that, like, for example, the year before under Pat Shermer, they were actually, you know, the offensive numbers actually improved, although they didn't win as many games, right? So the players can make the plays. It's just they've got to be schemed up better. So... I don't know what's going to happen with Jason Garrett. I would like to see some changes there. Patrick Graham can definitely stay (laughs) based on this year's performance. But having the 31st ranked offense that was lacking juice and firepower and was unable to improve Daniel Jones up till now, I don't think is going to be good enough to win in this league. 
Now, you mentioned that the NFC East or the division was part of what Jason Garrett's decision was. So we'll go on to mention Week 17 in particular. The Giants were part of the worst NFL division in recent history and, in my opinion, should not have even sniffed the playoffs. They had a chance of making the playoffs after beating the Cowboys in Week 17 and getting some help from others around the league. The Eagles, who had already been eliminated from playoff contention, needed to beat the Washington football team for the Giants to make the playoffs. Despite only being down three in the fourth quarter, former Philadelphia (laughs) Eagles head coach Doug Peterson decided to pull starter Jalen Hurts in favor of Nate Sudfeld. The Eagles would go on to lose the game, and Sudfeld would not play well. I believe he threw an interception during the game, and basically they had no chance to win once Sudfeld came into the game. After the game, Joe Judge lambasted the Eagles for basically tanking the game and thus eliminating the Giants from playoff contention. And I actually have the full quote from... Joe Judge, so I'm going to read it out now and we can discuss it afterwards. One thing to keep in mind with this season, we had a lot of people opt into this season. Coaches, players, that includes family members as well. To look at a group of grown men that I ask to give me effort on a day-in, day-out basis and to empty the tank, then I can look at them in the eye and ensure them that I'm always going to give everything I can to put them in a competitive advantage and play them at a position of strength. To me, you don't ever want to disrespect those players in their effort or disrespect the game. The sacrifices they made every day to test before coming in, to sit in meetings, to wear masks, to wear shields over those masks, to go through extensive protocols, to travel in unconventional ways, to get text messages at 6.30 in the morning telling them practice is going to be cancelled and we have to have a virtual day, to tell them please don't have your family over for Thanksgiving, Please avoid Christmas gatherings. We know it's your wife's birthday. Let's make sure we put that off until the off-season. There's a number of sacrifices that have been made by all the players and coaches in this league. To disrespect the effort that everyone put forth to make this season a success for the NFL, to disrespect the game by not going out there and competing for 60 minutes and giving everything you can to help those players win. We will never do that as long as I'm the head coach of the New York Giants. That's amazing right there. That's a mic drop moment. I love that. I freaking love that quote. Yeah, you know what's funny? That was the greatest way to throw shade without actually throwing shade. Right. He clearly directed that towards the Eagles, but he took a us-first mentality, mm-hmm. which doesn't necessarily mean that he's talking about them. You know what I mean? He basically takes the high road, but simultaneously you know, throws a jab. Yeah. I think it's kind of like subtweeting, you know? Like if you're... You tweet something like, don't talk to me or whatever. You're clearly talking about somebody else, but you don't actually mention them by name. And you know what? Mm -hmm. It's kind of sad that Doug Peterson got fired and we can go into that on another podcast. But I wanted to see, you know, what the response was going to be from Doug Peterson as coach of the Eagles or like they would have those games circled on their schedules. So there was a good, you know, rivalry brewing there. But unfortunately for Peterson, he, he ended up losing his job. So. It's funny enough, we talk about this last coaching hiring cycle as like the hiring of subcontractors and the Eagles just hired Nick Sirianni with the sole purpose of him fixing Carson Wentz. They hired him because he was Frank Reich's offensive coordinator and Frank Reich had major success under Carson Wentz in Philadelphia. This new Eagles is going to be 
essentially the polar opposite of what the Giants' approach is, which is more top-down. The Eagles will have more of a collaborative effort. We'll see what it looks like in the future. It could be a burgeoning rivalry, you know, what it once was, you know, in the early 2000s, which was great to see, but you know, still be seen. I hope so, too. And to Judge's credit, just to add on to that quote, he did say something to the effect of, well, you win six games, you shouldn't really be upset if you don't make the playoffs. Like, this is a historically bad division, and they probably shouldn't have been in there in the first place. And players echoed that sentiment as well. Logan Ryan said something about, well, of course you're going to have to depend on other teams. Uh, We only won six games, so at least they're being realistic about it. They're not sour or anything like that. It's good to see that the Giants players are taking the higher road. Exactly. Just to give final thoughts, so ultimately the Giants fought admirably despite the fact that they started the season 1-7. and To finish 6-10 and after going 1-7, and that's not too bad. I applaud their effort. You know, they didn't give up on the season. However, simply put, their offense did not have enough juice to get it done. The loss of Saquon Barkley really hurts this team as they don't really have anyone else to put fear into the hearts of defenses. The Giants still have plenty of needs heading into the next season, but they've shown that they will be a tough out every week. That being said, they have a long way to go before anyone can consider them as a legitimate threat in the playoffs. This year had some pretty one-sided losses. So San Francisco, Arizona, Cleveland, Baltimore, clearly superior to the Giants, and clearly they had bigger aspirations than the Giants did this season. But this season also featured them taking the Bucks to the brink of defeat and winning against the heavily favored Seattle Seahawks with Colt McCoy at the helm. They should not have even had the opportunity to compete for a playoff spot in the first place, but I'm proud of how they rallied to end the season. With the number 11 pick in the 2021 draft, they could go many different places. There have been rumors of them going after Kenny Galladay in free agency, as they have a huge need at number one wide receiver, and this would give Daniel Jones a legitimate weapon to throw to. But of course, we've discussed this earlier, Theo. You don't think they should go for Kenny G. But we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Daniel Jones still has a ton to prove to everyone, and this season was not his best. How much of that is down to Jason Garrett and the offensive staff is up for debate, but this much is clear. Daniel Jones needs to make significant strides in 2021 to justify the sixth overall pick. I'm willing to give him another year to prove himself and the Giants brass certainly agrees with me. Judging Jones against his draft class, excluding Kyler Murray, who is far and away the best QB in the group, who would you rather have, Theo? Drew Locke or Daniel Jones? At this point, I'd still go with Daniel Jones. I feel like Drew Locke is a more erratic quarterback at this point. Mm -hmm. But that's the thing. I mean, Drew Locke's a third-round pick, and Daniel Jones is a top-ten pick, right? Drew Locke's a second-round pick. Oh, second-round, sorry, yeah. But, okay. That's fair. I would still take Daniel Jones as well. Denver also had a down year, so we could be saying something different if Lockett stayed healthy and performed, right? Mm-hmm. I think they both have question marks. I just feel like Daniel Jones has less question marks. Sure. Like, I feel like if I were to place a bet as to who has a better career, mm-hmm. I would be confident in betting on Daniel Jones. And I don't think you should put a premium on draft status at this point because... The draft already happened. Right. You can't go back. You're right. That's a good point. So moving on, taking Saquon was also a controversial choice among some analysts. 
who thought that the second overall pick should have been used on a quarterback. They could have taken Sam Darnold, Josh Allen, Josh Rosen, or Lamar Jackson. That being said, there was a very solid chance that they could have whiffed on that pick, ending up with Rosen, while watching Saquon tear up the league instead of his ACL. The fact that the Giants' offensive hopes seem to hinge on a running back says as much about Saquon's ability as it does about how the organization has drafted and constructed the roster over the years. Dave Gettleman will be brought back as the GM next season, and as we mentioned before, he probably saved his job by doing really well in free agency. Names like Logan Ryan, James Bradbury, Blake Martinez. His drafts, however, have been underwhelming, with the notable exception of drafting Darius Slayton in the fifth round of the 2019 draft. The Giants are 15-33 and 33 under Gettleman as GM, so I would see this as a make-or-break year for the administration. That being said, the Giants have also been known to hang on to coaches and players for a year too long, and I could see this going on for longer than it has to. The tendency to hire within the organization when it comes to personnel could end up biting the Maras in the ass. You could look at things like sticking with Eli and signing Nate Solder to huge deals with the benefit of hindsight and see that they weren't the best decisions. However, I think this year's free agent crop has justified some of the Maras' faith in Gettleman as GM. Signing retread guys like Jonathan Stewart in 2018-19 and Dion Lewis is not going to win you anything, particularly when the offense is lacking in weapons as it is. I appreciate that those guys are needed for depth, but the fact is that we need more upside on the roster. From Dan Duggan of The Athletic, quoting Dave Gettleman, he says, As I've already admitted, 18 was not a stellar year personnel-wise. Gettleman said last week, We've learned from our mistakes. If only it were that easy. There are consequences for such mistakes. The Giants just went 6-10 and this season and have numerous holes to fill, yet they were only projected to have the 19th most cap space this offseason despite the benefit of having a quarterback on his rookie contract. Decisions like keeping Manning through the end of his contract and giving Solder a mega deal have financial implications that can't be swept under the rug. Still, where we sit currently, the top three teams in terms of draft position in 2018 were the Browns, the Giants, and the Colts, respectively. Two of those teams made the playoffs, and one of them is the Giants. So clearly, you know, they've made organizational moves in the past few seasons to put themselves in a position to compete where the Giants are starting to trend up in that direction, but not when you compare it to those two teams. So do you have any thoughts on that, Theo? Yeah, I find what you said was interesting towards the end with Dion Lewis mm. and Jonathan Stewart. Okay. And I think those approaches, like, the problem is, is that you... I know you're paying them at a value, but you're still paying them. Like you're not necessarily going out and getting these prized free agents, but you're still signing these guys to a couple of your contracts worth several million mm-hmm. versus, you know, trying to find guys of similar production in the draft for significantly less. Mm-hmm. Those types of contracts add up in the end and then they just eat away at your cap space. And what the Giants should have been really doing is just going more all out and building this team around Daniel Jones. Instead of getting, you know, a little bit of production here, a little bit of production there, you know, just go out and sign a guy and then supplement those other guys in the draft afterwards mm-hmm. and later on. I would agree with that. And like I said, I've never been a GM. Obviously, you sign these guys to fill out your roster. You sign them for intangible reasons. 
you sign them because they know a lot about football. They know what it's like to be a pro in the league. I understand that. But when push comes to shove, these guys are not going to win you a bunch of games, especially if, I don't know, I just feel like we need more upside on the roster. And that's kind of a buzzword, I guess. But we do need more upside on the roster, in my opinion. Yeah, I think foundationally the team is there. Mm-hmm. And 6-10 and 10 would show that. This is most definitely a critical offseason for the Giants, though. Mm-hmm. Based on how they perform the following year, there could be drastic changes that take place. I agree. From the GM standpoint, they're headed in the right direction, but I think that Gettleman needs to prove himself and nail this draft, you know? Yeah. Nail the 2021 draft. The Giants have the 11th overall pick. Again, they can go in many different directions, but I think that they definitely need to add some talent on offense and give defenses a player to worry about that's not Saquon. Because in my opinion, the reason Saquon's getting hurt so much is that the defense can key in on him. He's forcing himself to make plays for the team, and it's ultimately resulting in him having to take hits that maybe he wouldn't have otherwise. Ultimately, I think that's it. That's where the state of the franchise is now. There's so many different ways that the Giants can go, and it'll be really interesting to see where they go this offseason and and who they end up taking and all that. And like, it's difficult to put into context now because obviously the actual season hasn't ended yet. But I think you're right in saying that it's a crucial offseason for them, and hopefully they can get to where the Colts and Browns are now, or even better than that, you know, back to Super Bowl glory. You know what? There's always wishful thinking. The main takeaway, if I were a Giants fan, I would just be happy with the coach and the direction the organization is going in. Because it seems like foundationally you're much better off than the last couple of years with Shermer mm-hmm. and McAdams. So, <laughs> I think that my opinions in this kind of came across as complaining about what the team has been doing. And I don't want to come across as like a fan that's like nothing's ever good enough and this and that. I realize that these are professionals, you know, putting their bodies on the line for my entertainment. And I am extremely grateful for that. I wouldn't have suggested doing this series if I didn't have a deep-seated love for the New York Giants. They will always be my team. We are also very grateful that you guys have chosen to stick around with the series and listen and share with your friends and share your opinions with us. You know, let us know if you if you enjoyed the series, if you didn't, whether or not you liked it, you know, share it with everybody. And if you like this format, we'll be working on other history podcasts. And I think we really enjoyed doing it. And, and thank you so much for, for listening and taking the time to listen to us. Yeah, I'm eternally grateful to be able to uh, to do a project like this with you, Rizzoli. Me too. But I'm hopeful in the future and we will be trying to cover more teams. That is for sure. Exactly. Because I think... A lot of people like to analyze football as it's currently being played, but I also think that you need to take a step back and look at the path that got us here. Exactly, exactly. So for now, we are signing off on this History of the Giants series. And if you enjoyed it, please follow us on Twitter. Check down Charlie's on Instagram. Tell a friend, tell a friend. And thank you so much for listening, guys. Peace. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Check Down Charlie's podcast. Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Don't forget to follow us at CheckDCharlies on Twitter and at CheckDownCharlies on Instagram. Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms, and don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.